Before we get started with this episode of American Rabbi Project, a few quick things. First of all, if you like what you're hearing, please consider donating to this podcast. You can do so by going to my website, rabbiproject.com, and clicking on the Donate tab. Also, I am officially on the speaking circuit, so to say. If you're interested in having me speak to your group of any size, please shoot me an email, justin at rabbiproject.com. Once again, justin at rabbiproject.com. And of course, I can do virtual presentations. Finally, everyone interviewed for this podcast speaks solely for themselves. Welcome to American Rabbi Project, the podcast about American Judaism from the perspective of rabbis across the country. I'm Justin Regan. In the last episode, I interviewed Rabbi Dovi Shapiro in Flagstaff, Arizona, a few days before I started my around the country road trip. And when I left, it was also the last time I would live in Flagstaff, which is why I thought it was weird that I never seemed to have that moment where it hit me that I was leaving. Now, it could have been I didn't have time to feel anything other than the frustration of taking literally until the hour of my departure to pack, purge, preserve, and pass off all the stuff I had accumulated over the years. But again, maybe it was a little more than that because I was given another opportunity to have a moment of closure when I left Arizona by going through the Four Corners. When you're on a road trip, you cross many borders of all sorts, geographical, geological, geopolitical, and mental. However, you rarely get a chance to be dramatic about it. Usually when I crossed something significant, I was in a car going 70 miles per hour. I had a slightly sore back. I was slightly over-caffeinated and more likely than not listening to a never-ending audiobook on President Truman. But at the Four Corners, things were different. I had the opportunity to walk out of Arizona for the last time, and I didn't realize it until it was too late. But a friend who hosted me the first couple of nights brought up an interesting idea. She said, I didn't overlook these moments. I just didn't need them. Sometimes people move on from places, and it's not an indictment on any person, place, or thing, or even yourself. It's just... Sometimes we need a change. Episode 2, Colorado, Tradition and Change, with Altitude. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and to that I say, if I had named this episode Rocky Mountain High, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. Besides, Denver's great, but it's more of a tall plateau than a mountain city. Although I did spend a few nights at Rocky Mountain National Park, I saw many things that took my breath away, and even more tourists who got too close to the animals they were filming. Anyway, on my second morning in the Front Range, I rolled out of my tent, showered at a nearby camp, and drove straight to Denver to talk to Rabbi Solomon Gruenwald at the Hebrew Educational Alliance. I'm uh, Rabbi Solomon Gruenwald. I am a rabbi in Denver, Colorado, at Congregation HEA. I'm also the president of the Rocky Mountain Rabbinical Council. Gruenwald's parents immigrated from South America and gave him a strong Jewish education growing up. However, it wasn't always a given he'd become a rabbi. I initially started in academia. I was getting a Ph.D. in anthropology and studying religion, especially ritual, and how ritual is a vehicle for telling narratives. And it occurred to me at some point, among other things, that I wasn't satisfied being an outside observer that I cared about Judaism and I cared 
to be on the inside, not a not an anthropologist looking at it from the outside in, a, in an objective way, but as a participant. Gruenwald and his wife are like many Denverites. They're originally from coastal states and are part of a recent migration influx to mountain western towns. That wave is bringing Gentiles and Jews alike. And then you have people who've been here since the 1880s, and they're really fascinating. Some of them going back to the time of the gold rush and um, and some of the industries that, that grew up around that. Uh, there's another group that migrated here because of tuberculosis, actually. And so Denver has a really interesting history of tuberculosis hospitals, including uh, Jewish hospitals. National Jewish Hospital started as a tuberculosis hospital. Jews came here believing that the, the dry air, the mountains, would, uh, would help them with tuberculosis and, uh, and stayed here. Historically, the Jews of Denver were concentrated on the west side of town. As anti-Semitism decreased and incomes increased, they started spreading out, and HEA followed. The shul moved to southeast Denver 25 years ago, and following another change of the times, the synagogue switched denominations. The original synagogue was a little bit of an anomaly. It was, by today's standards, a very liberal Orthodox synagogue uh, with mixed seating. And so I think it had more to do with Orthodoxy moving further to the right and leaving behind some of the more liberal Orthodox congregations. And uh, conservative Judaism was a, a good place for them, a good compromise Now, there are a lot of Jewish denominations out there, and I'll talk more about each as they come up in the project. For now, I'll quickly summarize the, quote, main three. There is Orthodox, with a strict adherence to traditions and practices. The words of Torah are seen as the words of God and must be followed exactly. Some criticize the movement for its strict gender roles. For example, women are not allowed to be rabbis or read from the Torah at services. Many Orthodox places don't let men and women sit together at synagogue or even dance together at events. There is Reform Judaism. They tend to see the Torah more as a guiding force for living a good life, as opposed to, no pun intended, set-in-stone commandments. And they are fully egalitarian. And then there's conservative Judaism. That doesn't mean politically conservative. Instead, it refers to the drive to conserve the traditions while allowing adaption to the modern world. Hence why they see Torah as absolute, but are also egalitarian and will put modern spins on old traditions. And that's something that appeals to Gruenwald, who himself was raised reform. As I grew older in college, I started to explore my Judaism more um, more as my own, and um, started taking on more observance and study. And I liked the intellectual uh, rigor of conservative Judaism, the attention to scholarship and things like biblical criticism, as well as fidelity to, to tradition and traditional practice. While modern sects of Judaism have roots in the Enlightenment in Europe, the conservative movement really grew into its own in the interwar period in the U.S. Many Jews left the crowded cities and were no longer in walking distance to the Orthodox synagogues. In the conservative movement, a more lenient interpretation meant they could, if necessary, drive to shul on Shabbat. America made the denomination more relevant, but now it's in a decline. 
According to the Jewish Federations of North America and Pew Research, the number of American Jewish households that identify as conservative have been cut in half from about 40% in 1990 to less than 20 in 2013. It's still the second biggest denomination in the U.S., but while they trend down, Orthodox and Reform are growing. Conservative Judaism is a big tent, which I think is a, which is a strength. The, the paradox of that is that we, we often look like the mushy middle. On the one hand, the Orthodox world has the sort of clarity of fervor, I want to say, but um, a commitment to traditional practice. Uh, the Reform Movement has been very welcoming to interfaith families uh, in a way that conservative Judaism has struggled with. It's a key issue that some claim is hurting the movement. With each generation, interfaith marriage is more common for Jews in the U.S., and it can turn conservative Jews with a Gentile spouse towards reform or out of the faith altogether. And as a Gen Xer, Gruenwald finds himself wedged between the much-written-of ideological divide of baby boomers and millennials and their thoughts on marriage. Their choice to to fall in love with someone who's not Jewish is not uh, an outcome of our failure as a community. It's not an outcome of your failure as a parent. A lot of times these, these young people are, they were raised in a synagogue, they went to religious school, they became bar and bat mitzvah, they went to Israel. They did, you know, they did all the things that, that the Jewish community said would help strengthen their identity and make them more likely to marry somebody Jewish. What I often say to baby boomers is, that's not a product of our failure as a community or your failure as a parent. It's actually the outcome of our success as a community. We worked really hard to integrate into this country. We fought for equality. We fought for access to professions, to universities. Our children are very comfortable as Americans. They go to any college they want to. They don't experience overt anti-Semitism on a daily basis. They feel very comfortable in multicultural settings. Now, Gruenwald still believes Jews marrying Jews make for stronger families, and he says that there are struggles to interreligious unions. But he also thinks it's important to acknowledge the situation for what it is. We're less than 2% of the population. We, we go out and spread out among the rest of the country, you go to college wherever you want to, it's not surprising that, you're gonna, that Jews are going to fall in love with non-Jews and, and non-Jews are going to fall in love with Jews. What's hard for a lot of people to understand is that um, the choice to fall in love and marry somebody who's not Jewish, um, for many, many people, there is no contradiction to them between that and their Jewish identity. I hear it all the time. It's an opportunity, I think, for us to to share Judaism with others. But as newer generations open up to interfaith marriages more, there are older customs that can make things complicated. This includes the debate over matrilineal and patrilineal descent. Traditionally, a Jew's heritage is determined by their mother's lineage. If your mom's Jewish, it doesn't matter how much pork you eat or how Irish your last name sounds, you're in the tribe. But if you only have a Jewish father, no matter how observant you are, many Jews will say you're not Jewish. Reform is the only, quote, main three denomination to accept patrilineal, and even that comes with more standards. It's a situation where an interfaith couple or interfaith kid might seem, quote, more legitimate if the mom is the Jewish one. 
Bruinwald sides with the conservative movement in saying it's important to maintain matrilineal descent, but he wants to make it easy for patrilineal Jews to join. It's kind of like somebody who learns how to drive a car, but for whatever reason, nobody ever told them that you need a driver's license to drive a car. Um, and they get pulled over one day, and the police officer says, you know, show me your driver's license. They say, well, I don't have a driver's license, but I'm a very good driver. Sometimes you just need that, that driver's license to make it official. My, you know, my preference is for folks who are patrilineal, that we make it as easy as possible for them to affirm their identity as Jews through the rituals that are um, used for conversion. And I try to reframe it not as so much as conversion, but as an affirmation of their Jewish identity, a Jewish identity they already have, that they're already committed to. Again, a lot of things seem to be in flux these days. But Gruenwald isn't too concerned. He says despite what some might think, conservative Judaism is flexible enough to handle the changing times. When you have a commitment to tradition and are finding ways of of making Judaism accessible and engaging to, to Jews within that framework, I think it forces you to be creative and to create new expressions of Judaism that balance traditional practice with with new sensibilities, new ideas. And so I'm not terribly worried. Denominationalism in general, I think we all find our place, and those lines are, are getting more blurry, uh, which I think troubles some people, but it doesn't bother me very much. Blurry lines seems to be a tradition of Judaism in the United States, and every generation blurs them more, between denominations or observance, or even between Jewishness and Americanness, bringing on the classic questions of, are you more Jewish or more American? Where do your loyalties lie? But for Gruenwald, this is a non-issue. In some ways, it's a false narrative. Um, I sort of reject the, the premise of of that. America is a multicultural society. One of our strengths is our diversity and also the ability for for groups to express their distinctiveness within the plurality of of America, e pluribus unum, right? From the many one. That's America. So there's no contradiction in being proud and of your Judaism or whatever religion you practice, being proud of your ethnicity, expressing it in a in a public way and being fully American. So there's no, to my mind, there's no tension between those. Gruenwald goes even further, saying in this country, Jews should do more than just express their Jewishness, but to further weave it into the greater fabric of American society. I think we've reached a point where Judaism and being Jewish needs to be part of the public discourse in a greater way. You know, ironically, even though we have this very robust freedom of religion in this country, we also are very religious people. Americans in general, um, religion is part of our national debates over uh, politics, uh, social issues. Christians of all different sorts, Muslims and others, um, express their values through a religious idiom. And we as Jews, need we do this, and I think we need to do it more, um, expressing our Americanness through a Jewish idiom. He says for Jews to add to the public sphere, they should look towards their traditions and teachings. Judaism has this really neat concept at its core called Shabbat. You're hearing more and more non-Jewish people sort of discovering this idea of like setting aside the clamor and noise of modern life, you know, in some 
regular way, you know, either observing a day of rest or whether it's Saturday or Sunday, whatever it is. Um, but it's interesting to me that this idea of Shabbat comes as an antidote to some of the some of the challenges of living in the modern world. I think that's something that we have to offer people, that we have to offer our fellow Americans and and as a way that being Jewish and that doing Jewish can be part of that public discourse. So I asked Gruenwald, as a rabbi, what does he think his role is in this public conversation? I don't know that I've sorted that out for myself yet. I've spent a lot of time working within my synagogue, serving mostly Jews. More recently, though, um, I've gotten involved in activism, especially around immigration issues uh, that have been in the news and so on. And I think it's important that we as Jews, especially given our immigrant history from, for all of us here, that we stand up for um, the rights of immigrants as our tradition teaches to, um, to care for the, the vulnerable in our society, for the widow and the stranger. And we can't forget where we came from. For Gruenwald, talking politics in the synagogue is a delicate balance. He says too much can be toxic, but as a rabbi, he believes these discussions are important for his task of cultivating souls. One person's politics is another person's pressing moral issue. I try to focus on underlying values. I try not to bludgeon people with um, with my politics, but I do speak about I speak my mind sometimes about current events, and but I try to focus on the core values, uh, the places where we can agree things like you know, the dignity of all people, the equality of all people being created in the image of God. That's something that as Jews we should all be able to agree on. We can disagree about the implications of, of that in, in how we go about affecting those values politically. But Judaism has to speak to the present moment and has to speak the values that we've inherited. And that also comes into play when hatred is pointed towards Jews. Anti-Semitism, like other forms of bigotry, they emerge in times of, of instability and social disruption. So it'll always be there and it'll come back. When, when people are looking for scapegoats, among many, they will turn to Jews, immigrants, um, minorities of all sorts. It's a formula that has plagued many groups, Jews included, for centuries. And it taps into an old Jewish concern that countries are welcoming at first, but get hostile over time. Gruenwald hopes the U.S. is different and says it should remain safe as long as people support religious freedom and equality. Where I get worried is when people in power uh, express anti-Semitic and other bigoted ideologies. That's where I think we're not different. And what's been exposed in the last couple of years is that we are just as vulnerable um, as any country and that um, democracy is just as vulnerable in the United States as it is right now in Europe and in the rest of the world. And so we have to stay active politically. We have to stay active in the public sphere. And good people need to speak up. Like every rabbi I talked to on this trip, Gruenwald finds himself a learned member of the community during a fascinating time. Identity issues are being discussed, concerns of assimilation are in play, and anti-Semitism is always prevalent. So a reoccurring question in this project is, where do you see American Judaism 40 years from now? 
There's a lot of hand-wringing in the Jewish community today. And uh, on my bad days, on days where I'm feeling pessimistic, I wonder if I will be among the last generation of American rabbis and whether or not someday I'll be locking the door behind me uh, for the last time. But most of the time, I'm optimistic. We're in this very interesting moment, culturally, of upheaval in, in the best way. I mean, boundaries have been erased. You know, again, we talked about denominationalism. People move very fluidly. What I think we're going to see is there's going to be some upheaval and, and some things that will, will radically change in the coming years. But I think a new, new expressions of Judaism will emerge um, that are going to be really interesting. Gruenwald, for his part, knows quite a bit about fluctuating boundaries and expressions. It's part of his own spiritual journey. He left academia for the synagogue, switched denominations, and moved to the high plateau of Colorado. He does his part to stick to traditions, but also faces the inevitability of change with optimism. We need to change our metrics for success. If our measurements are always about, like, how many Jews light Shabbos candles, how many Jews go to synagogue every week, from those metrics, we look like we're, we're failing or declining. But when you broaden your metrics and you look at all the various ways that Jews are expressing their Judaism, Jews are proud to be Jewish. They want to be Jewish. They want to look to their tradition and their history for, uh, for meaning in their life. And ultimately, it's about, you know, how do you live a more meaningful, happy, flourishing life? And can Judaism offer something to help you do that, among all the very many other ways that people look for meaning in their life? Rabbi Solomon Gruenwald was the first stranger I interviewed for this podcast, and he taught me the lesson to never call a rabbi a stranger again. He was one of many friendly people who would give me their precious time, despite my lackluster elevator pitch. And it was when I left the Hebrew Educational Alliance and drove off in my smelly Civic that for the first time, the project started to feel real. This has been American Rabbi Project, Episode 2, Colorado, Tradition and Change with Altitude. It was written and produced by me, Justin Regan. Derek Pova handles all the web stuff and pushes me kicking and screaming to go the extra mile. I'd also like to thank Rivka Cohen, Jeremy Crones, Beth Vanderstoof, Sarit Rathbone, Dylan Abrams, and my parents for the assistance. And I'd like to thank Dan Ziffer for the logo of American Rabbi Project. And I want to thank Sarit Rathbone, Michael Delspina, Stephen Grunewald, and Porter Marsh for hosting me while I was traveling through Colorado. If you want to contact me, feel free to send an email to rabbiroadtrip at gmail.com. Once again, that is rabbiroadtrip at gmail.com. Please check out my website, rabbiproject.com, where you'll also find a blog about my travels and an index of Jewish terms. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter with the handle at Rabbi Project and on Facebook.com slash Rabbi Project. Until next time, shalom and safe driving.